have started this series called Living the Gospel, Christ in Me, and been talking about the aspect of, of, of Christ and what does that look like in me. We live in a time in a world where we are blending truth. And that's not even a fair statement. We are combining ideas and ideologies in which we, we think and what we imply. We live in the purpose of this culture of being true to ourselves and determining our own truth. We call it personal truth. We say it when we say what is yours is yours and what is mine is mine. If it doesn't affect me, it's okay. If it doesn't, we start creating these ideas of rationalism and then we walk into the scriptures and we begin to impose them in the scriptures, even within the church, I find it often. I find it when we begin to walk in such a way that we want God in our lives, but yet at the same time, we always want the final say of what God does in our lives, don't we? I mean, it's okay if God touches my life as long as I kind of sign off on it, as I put my stamp of approval. And then when things don't go that way, we have a tendency sometimes to begin to question God, his authority, his sovereignty, and his character. I find that, the world that in the world that we live, that this is becoming the, more and more the norm, not only within the church, but in the world, we've kind of moved away from him totally and completely. And now one of the things is the last two weeks as I've talked about being in Christ and our identity being in Christ, one of the things I wanted to address today is who is Christ? I mean, if we're gonna tell the world that Jesus is worth believing and he's worth your total surrender, and he's worth identifying that your identity is in him, what is it about Jesus that makes him so important, so valuable? If you grew up in the church, you're probably sitting here going, Greg, that's an easy one, he's God, right? Yeah, yeah. But when we talk about looking at the world and we're explaining that, how, how do we describe them? Who is he? You know, it's interesting in the book of Colossians, it's, there's often the term used, the Colossian heresy, it's reference to the, to the attack of false teachers that came upon the church in, at Colossae there. The Colossian believers were being, being distracted. They were beginning to mill in different ideas. There was a blending going on between the philosophies of the day and Judaism. And, and even in the Christian faith, they were beginning to change some of those ideas in order to embrace all of these different views, not anchoring back to, to the truth. And Paul begins to address that. And Paul doesn't deal with it in a way like he goes and he wrong, wrong, wrong. He shows differences, but he doesn't do that. What he does is he shows the fullness of who Christ is. It's one of the most important passages when you look in Colossians and, and all of scriptures in the description of the person of Jesus Christ, when we begin to understand who he is and as Paul draws out this picture of who Christ is and why he is worthy of our life. In fact, in chapter two of Colossians Paul, Colossians, Paul says, he says, the mystery, talking about the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you. That is the gospel, Christ in you. And he only says it after this great announcement of who the person is, of, of, of Christ is. In the church of Colossians, we had the early forms of what many believe was Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that all matter was evil, and therefore, it was to be avoided at all cost. Um, and they had different ways of going about doing that. They also believed in these kind of, kind of intermediate 
intermediate beings that kind of went out from God. They called them eons, and, and they kind of went out from God, and the further they got away from them, there was less de- deity, but in some of their ideas was that there was enough deity that, that the world was created and so forth, but so that God wouldn't be able to touch matter and be influenced, and, and they begin to incorporate this into many of their Christian beliefs. They also believed that salvation was ultimately attained through knowledge. That's why we need to be careful, dear people of God, when we're so good at studying things and knowing things that we don't rely on knowledge and in the process we forget the relationship. That we are his children. We are his people. It was with all of those kinds of things that they began to teach. So, the, so many of those Gnosticists where those folks of the day struggle with the whole idea, the concept that Jesus, that he was God in flesh. How can God in flesh be, be brought together? And Paul begins to, begins to address that, that whole belief and that idea of, 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 of that God and matter. It distorted their Christian life. It distorted the view of it, distorted how they went about it. It, it resulted in, in different aspects where, whereby they were, uh, they were abusing their bodies, denying their bodies because flesh was evil. So they did everything they could to, to destroy, to, to bring under control the flesh. Um, you know, I mean, when I, when every time I ever think through this, I always think of, you know, I grew up, I, I, when I went to, uh, college and so forth. I, I was around a lot of legalism. Many of you have been too. And it's something to believe that somehow we can, we can attain spiritual maturity by just simply, just simply bringing these things under control. And yet that's what was going on in that first century church. The other side of the coin was they believed that, hey, the body's evil. It means nothing. All that matters is the soul. So whatever I do in the body, it doesn't matter. So they, they did outrageous things. I mean, they went about sinning and inappropriate relationships and on and on and gave no thought to it because the body doesn't matter because whatever happens in the body is evil. What matters is the soul. They still claim God. And in either case, they were, they were dethroning Christ. They were diminishing the role and the person of Jesus Christ in their own life and their own thoughts. All of a sudden, it wasn't about, really wasn't about who Jesus is and what Jesus said. It was about what they attained and determined what righteousness was. Either or, whether it was denying themselves and their bodies and their activities, going to extreme aspects of, of, uh, of, of, of starvation, were not feeding themselves, were, were beating themselves, to the other side of just turning loose, saying it's evil, there's nothing we can do about it, live however they want. Both of them denied Christ. Because both of them didn't bring it back to who is Jesus and who is he? What does Jesus have to say about their lives? And Paul writes in the book of Colossians and he begins to address some of these issues. Some of these these differences that they had and bring to truth some of these lights. I I think it's, I think it's, it's important to realize that Paul writing this letter the, the impact of these false teachers were already beginning to have on these believers at Colossae. And so therefore he writes this letter. I, I, I think it's reflective of today, to be honest with you. Hear me out, people of God. I think sometimes even in the church, we're allowing many of the beliefs, the philosophies of our days, the thoughts of our days to impact what we believe about who Christ is. More and more, I'm hearing more and more people who once were a part of the church 
leaving the church or even staying in the church, but only seeing that Christ is part of maybe one of the ways to God. That what you believe, that's great, that's fine. And yeah, maybe we'll reach God there too. Dear people, God, that can't be said. I've seen more and more of a, of a, of a movement. Of, it's not just a movement. It's become a way of life and a way of belief about the attitudes of what God has said in his word. And these things are coming in and we're trying to mix them about. I've seen it in, this, in the secular world where there's this idea of Christ consciousness, this, this spirit, almost this idea that the Gnostics had of, of an eon that's being sent out further and further, more and more of them from God, representing some type of deity, but not being God himself. And, and them seeing this idea that there's a spirit, this, and it becomes nothing more than an Eastern mythical idea. And we're seeing this more and more in the blending of Christianity and the truth of the scriptures and blending it together. And why do I say, no, we can't? Why do I say that, that to myself when I say, it is, it is Christ and it's him alone? Why do I say that? I've had people tell me, Greg, you're closed-minded. I'm a broad-minded thinking person. And you're closed-minded. We're educated. What have they done? They've elevated their, their thinking. We're smarter. We're more intelligent. We're more educated. We know more. And I, and I just reply, I look at the person of Jesus. When you go back to the first century and you see these men who wrote about him, people who, as John said, and uh, the apostle John said in 1 John, whom we have seen, we have touched, we have heard, we have handled him. And they write these things about who Jesus is and what Jesus claimed and what Jesus said. And somehow 2,000 years later, we have a better understanding than them. We would not apply that in any other system of justice or any other system of, of understanding, but we do it with Christianity, right? We do it with the person of Jesus. Dear people of God, the reason, the reason that we stand firm on what we believe is because we stand firm on the person of Jesus. And when we move away from the person of Jesus and who he is, then yes, these other things become very easy to plug in. It was happening in the church at Colossae. They were diminishing who Jesus was. They were diminishing his role. They didn't recognize him necessarily as, as, as God in flesh, that God has represented himself, made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. So when Paul walks in here and he walks into this letter and he writes to this church, he's beginning to identify those things. That my, my personal truth, my personal thoughts do not trump the things of God. And dear people of God, we need to understand that. We don't have to be rude to the world. We don't have to be rude to those who hold that, but we need to be firm about what we believe and what we understand about the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul begins writing in Colossians chapter one and verse 15. And that's where we'll begin today. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. This first phrase should blow you away. In verse 15 of chapter one of Colossians, it says, he is the image of, of the invisible God. Just stop there and think for a second. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, stop and think about this. You cannot see God, right? I mean, if we can see God, we would say, oh, right, see right there's God, there's God. God is spirit. 
Christ became visible. Christ took on this likeness of sinful flesh that he might reveal who God is. In fact, that word image literally means one in likeness. In fact, it's the idea of exact likeness. It's the person of Christ reflecting who God is because he is God. There is a picture in which Jesus walks the earth. If you want to prove to me my faith is wrong, prove to me that Jesus isn't God. Prove to me that Jesus isn't the God-man. Prove to me that he isn't the exact representation of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 3, it says, oops, did I... Can you click that over for me? Sorry, for some reason it's not going. I don't know what I did. Oh, there it goes. It says in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now think about what he's saying here. First it says, it's talking in Hebrews one, and we're gonna look at verses one and two in a minute, but it says in, in Hebrews three, it says he, that's referring to Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. I've, I've often thought about that term and I love that term. The best, the best idea I can get is when I think of the sun. Have you ever seen, seen the sun? Well, if you look at the sun, if you try to look at it, what happens to your eyes? You get blinded, don't you? If you focus in on it, because it's so, so radiant. But how do we know the sun's even there? Because of the rays, right? And Jesus is the exact radiance of God. He's the representation of who God is. When you see Christ, it's to see, to see God. In his person, in his, in his character and who he is, he reveals the very essence of God. And then I like this next phrase when it says, the exact imprint of his nature. That word imprint is the idea that we get from, from a stamp. It's the idea of an engraving to, tool that makes this exact representation. I was trying to think of it in technology today and, I'm, and I might hurt myself if I do this, but I'm gonna give it a shot, right? Have, have you ever seen a 3D printer? I always thought they're really cool because you put in the image, right? And then this printer, I don't, you know, when I think of printers like ink on paper and all of a sudden this three-dimension, this three-dimension thing actually comes about. I was over here at, um, at Ben Barber a couple of years back and doing a tour and, and they were showing how they were working on, on a hand, uh, you know, our, our th- um, a hand for, you know, no, I just went, I can't even think of the term. But anyway, right on the hand, they were showing how each part, and they were making this with a 3D printer. It was a, and so every time this printer made something, it was the exact representation of what they put into the printer, that image. Well, the difference here is that Jesus is the exact representation or the exact imprint of God because he is God. He himself is God. He's the imprint of who he is. He's the exact representation. Nothing missing, nothing altered, nothing changed because Jesus is God. It's interesting when you think about the Jews or the Hebrews in the Old Testament. Whenever whenever they heard about God, it was always through voice. It was always through revelation, like a prophet. They said, and the word of the Lord came you know, to da-da-da-da, and the prophet came and represented him because they'd never seen God. They never knew God. They knew they couldn't in the sense of, of knowing him physically. They never, never could have thought that. And yet here when Jesus comes on the scene, now it's the word in flesh. In John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, you may need to do that for some reason. Mine's not. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, 
and the word was God. Now, we, it's interesting that they use the word. They use it, I think, for philosophical ideas of the day, but as well for the idea of that he was speaking. And now he says, and the word was God. Then in the next verse down in verse 14, a few verses down, it says in John 1, 14. Oh, there it is. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Stop and think about that for the Jewish mind. Here a minute ago, John said, in the, word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now he's saying, and the Word became flesh. In other words, here right now in our presence is the exact representation of God, that God is dwelling among men, that God is dwelling among humanity, and he's making himself known in this exact representation of who he is. Why is Jesus worthy of my complete surrender? Because he's God. Why is it worthy that for me to place all of my faith and to surrender myself to him? Because he's God. It says, it goes on, and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I almost said only begotten from the old King James. If some of y'all remember that. The only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That when we looked at Christ and we saw Christ, we saw the Father. I, I believe it's in John chapter 14. There, when they're asking Jesus, Jesus said, why? Why do you ask that question? What, do you not know that what I see my Father do, I do? What I hear my Father say, I say. Because I am representing the Father. I am, a, I am the exact representation of the Father. I am, in essence, he's God. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing picture. And then in Hebrews chapter, chapter 1 and verse 3, or verses 1 and 2, right before we, a minute ago, it says, Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's what the Hebrews and the Jews, they knew. They, they heard it audibly. They heard it vocally. But, but now, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You want to know what God intends for you, you gotta know Christ. You wanna know purpose of life, the intensity of life and what it's about, you gotta know Christ. In fact, Jesus is the precise, exact, unblemished, perfect representation of God. Did that not excite you? That you by faith believe in the one who is the son of God, who loved you, who died for you, and by the power of God was raised again, and that your only hope is in him, that because he raised, you too will raise in him? Now, does that not excite you? What are we doing here then? If it's not the power of Christ and the, and the fact that he's God, why are we here? If that doesn't move your soul, if that doesn't move your heart, if that doesn't make the blood in you boil and, and with excitement, then dear people of God, you need to look at yourselves. That is our truth. I don't care what the noise of the world is, the fact that I stand here, I stand only because of Christ. You sit there only because of Christ. And if you're not moved by him, the dear people of God, you need to rethink your faith. 
We cannot be a people that go just haphazard through this world. We are the people of God, delivered by God. In fact, in a few verses before 15, he talks about qualifying us and delivering us. And dear people of God, if he's done that, we have to be a people that understand who have a resolve about how we live our lives in Christ. Come on, amens need to be there. Or else you need to be thinking about your faith. If you're bothered by that, there's a problem. And you need to search more the scriptures. You need to understand the truth of who he is and what that application is in your life. I have no other hope. I have no other retirement plan, game plan. I don't have anything else. I have Christ. There's nothing else. And if we were to think anything else, God forbid, for we too will be deceived. We too will be led astray. We too will find ourselves bewildered with God, understanding what God, not understanding what God has intended for our lives. We have now listened to our own voices, to our own hearts, to our own minds, our own ways, rather than the ways of our God who loved us, who cared for us, who delivered us, and who made us righteous in him. Amen? Yeah, thanks. Start waking up out there. I don't, folks, I don't, if you know me, you know I'm pretty straight, right? You know, it gets me in trouble all the time. Um, but I'm serious. I'm really serious about this. I'm not trying to, this isn't about guilt. This is about, hey, let's look at our hearts. Let's, let's understand what we believe and why we believe. That we are a people that follow after him. Sometimes I think we don't identify in Christ because we're, because we lose sight of who Jesus is in our lives. He goes on in this passage and it says the firstborn of all creation, that's the idea of, it's not, not a relation to time because Jesus was the creator, he wasn't created. Understand that. Jesus is a creator, he's not the created. So the idea of firstborn refers to rank, not chronology. It's not referring to a, a sequence of time, but the fact that, the, that he has rank, he's a firstborn. He's a, it's like in the Old Testament, the, the firstborn son, where the firstborn was always over the house. He was given the rank and authority. So Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And it goes on, for by him all things were created in heaven on, and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Three different times there it says, by him, through him, and for him. By him because Jesus is the originator. He's the center of creation. Creation did not happen without him. Do you understand that? You understand that he is the originator. It happened by his power and his person. I can go look at all of the things of creation and sometimes it just blows my mind because I don't know how it all fits together, but this I know, he is at the center of the creation. He is the originator. It also says it was through him that Jesus is the person or the ancient agent in which wisdom and creation came about. It came into being because of him because it came through him. And then it says, for him, in the end, 
of which all things were created is for him. They exist for him. The goal is to bring these, all these things together. He's the answer for reconciliation. That's why I say it's so important that if you don't know the creator, how can you know your purpose? Any philosophy, any statement of why we exist, any of those things, if we eliminate the creator, how do we know we have it right? It's like, it's like taking, I talked about a tool that a friend of mine made and he handed me, it looked like a scrap piece of metal, but yet once he showed me how to use, how to use it, it worked perfectly. It's the same way. We, we look at life, we see these things and we, we blame God for things and we look around and it doesn't make sense because we've lost the purpose for which God intended. And it isn't until we bring these things back in line with the creator, with the originator, within which whom all things came into being, it isn't until we bring them back in line with him that we begin to understand them. Until then, we create our own systems and our own ways and we see the fallacies and the frustrations of them. It is in Christ, it is in him in which we find the purpose and the understanding for which we are created and how we live and what we're to be about. That's why it's important to understand that our identity is in Christ. And if we put it in anything else, it's going to be frustrating, it's going to falter, it's going to come up short. And then he goes on in verse seven, 17, it says, and he is before all things. I love that term, before all things, that Jesus is not limited by time. He's not defined by time. Keep that in mind. He took upon the likeness of flesh for a time, but he's not limited by time. He's before all things. He's before anything which, which was set forth. And in him, all things hold together. In other words, it's the uni he's the unifying principle and the source in which all things hold together. I think it was Lightfoot who said, he's the cohesion who makes the universe a cosmos rather than a chaos. That he holds these things together. And, and humanity has looked for centuries at the beauty of the cosmos to understand how it fits together. And at the center is still continually is the one who holds it together is Christ. In verse 18, he goes on and he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's interesting here that he is the beginning of the church. He's the source of life of the church. The church being his people. The church belonging to him. He is the head of that church. He is the head of us. And when I say church, I don't mean Mansfield Bible Church. I mean the people in the church who are his people. He is the head. He's first born from the dead that Jesus conquered death and gave life. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad someone's awake out there. Let's go. Come on, people. That he conquered death. Amen. I mean, gosh, we have life because of him. And then it says there in the very last, it says that in everything, he might be preeminent. This really struck my heart this week, especially. Um, preeminent. I had to look it up. It means surpasses all others. Greatness, superiority, prominence. That he would have superiority, prominence, greatness in all things. And then I asked this question to myself. I said, is he preeminent in the church at NBC? And it doesn't, doesn't say preeminent in the elders. It doesn't say preeminent in the leaders. It says preeminent in all things. 
And I begin to ask my, myself this question, have I, do, I, do I have Christ as preeminent in my life? I mean, I like to say yes, and, and maybe it looks good because I stand up here and preach, but I fight that too, right? I, I am no different than you. I have never, have never hidden my own faults. Because I want you to understand that I walk this world learning to follow after Jesus just like you do. I'm no different. I don't have a special card because I'm a pastor of extra grace to be able to overcome these things. But then I began to ask the question as I studied this this week, is Christ preeminent in my life? You see, the answer to that question of asking that question, is Christ preeminent in the church at NBC? The reality is, the question is, is he preeminent in your life? Because the church isn't me, it isn't the elders, the church is all of us. It's whether you're here today or you're in, at home this, today, it's all of us. And the question needs to be asked, is Christ preeminent in our lives? Is he the prominence in our lives? Is he the superior one in our lives? Is his greatness in our lives? And dear people of God, that flows into so many areas of my life and the challenges that go with it. And yet God has given us, as we saw last week, everything, all things. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it doesn't mean a life of ease and it doesn't mean a life of everything working our way, but it means a life of victory. It means a life that is found in Christ to begin to understand why we've been created and who we are in Christ Jesus and finding ourselves in him and experiencing the blessings so that in the midst of chaos, I can say that the joy of the Lord is my strength. In the midst of, of tragedy, I can say the peace of God sustains me. In the, in the tragedy of life, I can say that the comfort of the Lord endures me. It doesn't mean I don't feel the emotions and the pains and the heartaches, but it does mean that the one who I look to will sustain me through them. He will endure me. He will, he will give me victory in Christ. And maybe it's today, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's next year, and maybe it's when he comes, but the victory is his. And he goes on in verse 19, and it says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What a statement that the sum total of divine powers and attributes was dwelling in him. Nothing of deity was lacking in Jesus. To the, to the Gnostics of their day, when they were sitting there and they could not see the God-man in flesh. They couldn't see Jesus in flesh. How could he be God? And they were denying that. And Paul is standing here by the power of the Spirit and the guidance of the Spirit as he wrote. He is saying that all the fullness of deity dwelled in him. There was nothing lacking. Nothing lacking. And though our world would tell us different about Jesus, though our world would tell us different about who he is, and though even in the church, some would, would try to distract and dethrone him and take him out of his place, the reality is it doesn't change anything about who Jesus is. In him, all the fullness of God dwelled. 
And I heard you, Scott. Last week he gave me a hard time because he said I didn't hear his amen. But I heard you. I just wanted you to know that. I just embarrassed you too. Sorry. (laughs) Thank you. He asked me afterwards. I go, no, I didn't hear you. And he's like, well, I was right there. (laughs) And then he goes on in verse 20. And he says, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That idea of reconcile literally means the idea to bring together. But it goes a step further. It means to change, to change completely. It's the idea of to remove the, the, the enemy or the, the war that's taking place. That Jesus would change us. It's the idea of, of reconciliation that, we, that, that implies at one time we were at odds with God and now he's brought us together. If there is ever a time in our nation and in our world that reconciliation is needed, it's now, isn't it? And here's the theme, people of God. It's not gonna be a government system. It's not gonna be a human system. It's not gonna be one person that's gonna make it all be addressed. It's when people know Christ and he changes the heart of people, right? On every side. I'm not talking one side or another here. Please don't take me there. I am talking about the iniquity of humanity and how we get so divided, we need to be brought together. And I don't know any other way than through the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done, his work on the cross that people would come. That's why it's important, dear people of God, that we are a people that proclaim who Jesus is. That's why it's important. He goes on, I'll I'll get going again, but we'll go on. Verse 21, he says, uh, he says he did this by making peace with his blood, but go on verse 21, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is interesting. The word alienated means estranged or cut off without God. It talks about our minds, our disposition towards God was hostile. And you think about that, it is true. Listen, when I have a problem with God and God, he does this sometimes, he he gets a hold of that deep thing in my life, right? And I go, God, I don't want you to deal with that. I like it. I want that. I feel justified. You know, I'm, I'm quick to react. And sometimes afterwards I go, oh man, you know, but they deserved it. They should have heard. They needed to hear what I just said. You know, it's really easy for me to do. And, and, and praise God for my, for my brother in Christ, Greg, who's over the years has, has worked on me on that, right? God used him. And sometimes they do need to hear it, but they just need to hear it with grace, right? And sometimes God gets a hold of that with me. And I'm sitting there going, oh, no, no, no. You know, it's a fight. Why? Because I'm hostile towards God and his ways. Because there's other ways that God wants me at. The fruit of the spirit of love, of kindness, of peace, of self-control. And I'm like, no, I want my control. I want, I want to have the stamp on this, God. I want to be in control of that. It creates a hostile Hosti- hostility between me and God. 
It's a disposition that when I let it run and I don't listen to God, evil deeds come about. But Christ made peace with this. In other words, he binds together that those who were once alienated were brought together with, by a holy God. And he did this by the blood of his cross because it tells us in Hebrews 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The cost of our redemption was the sacrifice of his son. And he uses the term body of flesh there in, in verse 22 that he substituted, he was in our place and he addressed it once and for all. And then he goes on and he says he did this because he presented us he wants to present us holy. That means set apart, consecrated, blameless, without blemish, with no default in us. And above reproach, I love that term, above reproach, free from accusation. That before Christ, there is no more accusation. We've been freed. Before him, we are seen in Christ. Jesus is our identity. It tells us in Romans chapter eight and verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who walk in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's an amen. I, if, I, if, if, my knee, if my knee could handle, I'd be jumping up and down right now. That there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who were once alienated from God have been brought near by the, the peace of Christ, making peace with them through the blood of Christ by the substitute of his body, and now we are above reproach. You can accuse me all you want, but the one I'm listening to is Christ. My adversary accuses me daily, but I'm listening to Christ. And by faith, I walk in him. By faith, I depend on him. And then in verse 23, we gotta finish this one, guys. Verse 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Well, that's a scary phrase, isn't it? If indeed you continue in the faith. He goes, if you indeed, if you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, that word stable means like a rock, firm, or steady, resolve is steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard from which, uh, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. That phrase right there, it always got me, if indeed you continue in the faith. The idea here is not, not the retention of salvation, but the possession of it by continuing in the gospel. It's not a warning that I'm gonna lose my salvation, but the picture is, is if I continue living the gospel, if I don't leave the hope of the gospel, then it shows that I have the possession of it because I understand who I am in Christ. Dear people of God, understand the reality that you have to walk in, the, in, in your faith, that you're independent on Christ, it's this whole picture that we drew out when we talked about abiding in Jesus. John chapter 15, if you abide in him and his words abide in you, what? Ask whatever you wish. That's an incredible statement. The reality is most of us don't abide in him and most of us don't allow his words to abide in us. So we wonder why when we ask, nothing gets answered because dear people of God, we've got to continue to abide in Jesus. We've got to continue in him. If your walk with God is guided more by who Jesus is in your life, is your walk guided by who Jesus is in your life? Or do you live Christ when it's convenient and favorable for you? That's a tough question. I'm not trying to guilt here, but you gotta look at your heart. You gotta be honest with God. Do you live Christ because it's convenient? Where if it gets in the way, you kind of set it aside? 
I, I, I never forget the guy who told me, Greg, he worked at a prison. He said, Greg, you don't understand how I got to treat these guys. Yeah, right. Well, I know you want Christian and, you know, being a Christian in, the, in, the, in my workplace, but like, man, you just can't do that there. What? Did Jesus change the way, who he was based on the environment he walked in? He was Jesus wherever he went. Or maybe he only, only you live Christ only when it agrees with you or fits your lifestyle. You see, that's not a resolve. That's not living the gospel. That's not living Christ in me. We need to have a resolve to live Christ in me. The reason why I'm spending this time talking about our identity in Christ is because who Jesus is. Because the word has made it clear that he is the exact representation of God and in him was the fullness of the deity and there was lacking nothing in him. He is worthy of my complete and total surrender. He is worthy for me to identify with him and to find my identity and to stop the hostility in my life with him, but to surrender myself to him and walk with him and to walk in my identity of who I am in Christ Jesus every day. Dear people of God, I thank you for putting up with me today. I know I went over. I guess I'm getting in the habit of that. Yeah, no quarantine, nowhere else to go. Um, I just want you to know this thing's real to me. Everything I'm talking to you about is real to me. It's, it's how I sacrifice my life. It's how I live my life. And many of you know me a long time. You've seen my foolishness. You've seen my failures. You know that I, I have had those victories and I've had those defeats, right? But this is real. This is real. I don't wanna be a church I don't wanna be a people of God that walk through a door and play games. I don't wanna be that. I don't wanna be that. I want this to be real. Every step that I take, every breath that I breathe, every word that I say, I want it to be Christ. And I'm gonna fall, you're gonna fall. We just gotta show each other grace. This business of getting mad at each other and running, we gotta stop. We gotta be the people of God with the spirit of God that dwells within us. We gotta show grace. We gotta show kindness. We, we need to put on the spirit of God and walk in him. Anyway, I can go and let's pray. Dear people, dear God, I just pray you'd speak to us, your people. That Lord, your spirit would move in our hearts and that we would not find ourselves, Father, in the, in the, in the column of deception. Our adversary wants to blind us, oh God. He wants to deceive us. He wants to do everything he can and he floods our lives with, with all kinds of, of media and internet information and on and on. Trying to drown out the truth of your word, trying to drown out your voice in our lives. And dear God, let us not do that. Help us in our unbelief, help us in our weakness. That Father, we would know faith and understand faith and walk in faith. That Father, we would find it important to fight for every step of the way in our lives. That Father, we would, we would find our rest, our peace. We would find, Father, the, the hostility has stopped and there's peace with you. And that Father, we would rest there. We don't have to defend you. You're able and capable of yourself. But oh God, let us, let us find 
Let us be a people of faith, finding our rest in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.